Uh, I'm going to try to really just uh, land the plane a little bit uh, today. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn over there. Uh, And Fred and Madison have said a lot of things uh, to sort of build on what I'm planning to talk about. And so I view my role uh, here not really to say anything earth-shattering, not to say anything fancy, but simply uh, just to charge you, uh, give you a charge and an encouragement to love and trust the triune God. And um, if there's anything that I love more than being in a Baptist church is that in Baptist churches, people preach, right? So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to get to preaching today. That's going to be my role, okay? We're just going to have a nice little uh, Romans 8 sermon, okay? Now, I love talking about the Trinity. Uh, I write on it. I research on it. I teach uh, classes every single semester on the Trinity at Cedarville. And uh, because I'm a Trinitarian theologian, or at least pretending to be one in public, uh, my children get a lot of Trinitarian theology at home. Okay, some would say my poor children get a lot of Trinitarian theology at home. Uh, but it's gotten to the point now to where my children are actually having Trinitarian debates with each other, which both warms my heart and concerns me just a little bit. Uh, so my uh, eight-year-old, I have an eight-year-old, a five-year-old daughter, and an 18-month-old daughter. The two oldest daughters recently, we do this thing with them where we say, you know, um, can daddy save you? And they'll say, no. We'll say, can mommy save you? And they'll say, no. And we'll say, what about your baby sister? She's cute. She's sweet. She's cuddly. She could save you. And they'll say, no. And then I'll say, well, uh, who can save you? And they say, God. You know, it's a great little catechism for our family. Uh, It got a little complicated the other night before bed because I was doing this routine with them. And uh, when I said, who alone can save you, my eight-year-old said, God. And my five-year-old said, Jesus. And my eight-year-old turned to my five-year-old and she said, the answer is God. And my five-year-old said, yeah, but Jesus is God. And my eight-year-old said, yeah, but like, but Jesus isn't God like God's God. And my five-year-old's like, yeah, if Jesus is God, then Jesus is God like God's God. This is a real, real true life conversation that they were having with each other. And so I said, I said, girls, girls, actually, uh, you're both right, kind of. Okay, Uh, now my wife usually stops me before I get into a really complicated Trinitarian explanation with my children, but she was not there that night, so I got to uh, to have a little fun with it. So, uh, but this little debate between my girls actually is, uh, in some sense, the heart of the debate about the Trinity and our understanding of the Trinity. Because we confess that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all equally God. Okay, something that I stole from, I think I actually stole it from Fred, but since he's here, I'm going to make sure and footnote him. Uh, But you can say something like, uh, the persons of the Trinity are each God, but they are not each other. Right, there's the one God in three persons. So when my girls are arguing about whether or not God saves us or Jesus saves us because he's God, they're actually getting us down the road a little bit of what we think about when we think about the Trinity. That there is this one God in these three persons and that we say uh, the same things about the three persons that are proper to the idea of being God. Okay, so what I want to do today really is look at Romans 8, where Paul uh, talks about this. He talks about salvation, he talks about the Christian life, and he does it in such a way that he just uses this father-son-spirit language sort of interchangeably and uh, kind of after each other and before each other, kind of what we saw uh, like in Galatians 4 uh, in Fred's talk earlier. And what we really can get down to is that in Romans 8, he says that God saves us, God empowers us to live the Christian life. And God keeps us in the Christian life. If you could have a Trinitarian shape of Romans 8, that's what it would be. So as we get to the end of this uh, little mini sermon, what I want you to be able to say is, if someone were to ask you, does the Father save, empower, or keep you? Or does the Son save, empower, and keep you? Or does the Spirit save, empower, and keep you? Your answer would simply be yes. 
Not either or, but yes. Because the way that Paul talks about it is that these uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are always acting inseparably, right? This idea of inseparable operations that we brought up already, which just simply means that the Father, Son, and Spirit, because they are the one God, because Deuteronomy 6, there is one God that's still true, even after the incarnation and Pentecost, that because they are the one God, they never act apart from one another. Okay, so when we talk about the oneness of God, we're saying things like one nature, uh, the same set of attributes, right? One action, that when the Father, Son, and Act, it is still the one God acting. Okay, but that doesn't mean, obviously, on the other end, that we would say that uh, the Father took on flesh and dwelt among us. We wouldn't say that because, biblically speaking, that's not proper to say. Or that the Spirit sent the Son. We wouldn't say that because the Bible doesn't say that, right? And that would ultimately deny the three persons, the distinction between the persons. So Trinitarian theology is always living in this sort of mystery, the sort of world between saying there is one God and there are these three persons who are the one God. And we say both of those things because that's the best way to speak how the Bible speaks. Okay, so I want us to look at that in Romans 8 today. And what Paul does is he uses this Trinitarian language to speak about the Christian life. So that ultimately we can't talk about salvation and we can't talk about the Christian life apart from talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so I think I've got about 25 minutes or so. So we're going to move uh, pretty quickly through Romans 8, okay? But if you're a note taker, I've got sort of three big questions that I think Romans 8 lays out here. Three questions. I figure since we're doing Trinity, we might as well do three, right? Three, three points in one talk. Okay, that's, a, that's probably a heretical analogy somewhere down the line. But, uh, but three questions, okay? First, uh, how does the triune God bring us into the Christian life? How does the triune God bring us into the Christian life? Second, how does the triune God empower us to live the Christian life? And then how does the triune God keep us in the Christian life? Okay, so how does, the whole, how does the triune God bring us? How does the triune God empower us? How does the triune God keep us? Okay, so up to this point in Romans, if you're familiar with Romans, Paul lays out a very clear picture for why we are all sinners in need of salvation, right? And at the very end of Romans 7, right before this, Paul laments, a wretched man that I am, right? Who can save me from this body of death? Okay, and when he's talking about this, he's saying, uh, I am a man who still, you know, gives into sinful desires. I'm still a man who realizes that even through grace, I am wretched. Okay, and this is always a tension I think all of us feel as Christians, right? We recognize that we're sinners, but also that God has saved us. And so in Romans 8, what he does is he turns and he says, uh, here is a triune or a trinity-centered hope that you should be feeling when you feel that way. If you, as all of us, say along with Paul, Wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Paul says, I've got, actually got an answer for you. I've got an answer for you. Okay, so let's do question number one. And this will be a little bit brief because uh, Fred has uh, already talked a lot about salvation. So I don't want to go uh, too far into that because I think he set this up well. Okay, but how does the triune God bring us into the Christian life? That's the first question. How does the triune God bring us into the Christian life. So in verses one to four, I think Paul kind of lays this out as a foundation for the rest of the chapter. Okay, so let me state the obvious. Uh, we aren't saved apart from the Christian life, uh, from, the, from the triune God, right? We are brought into the Christian life in the first place by the work of the triune God. Okay, so before anything else, Paul says this starting in uh, verse one of Romans eight. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. 
in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. By the way, if you want to go ahead and do a triangle that uh, Fred taught us earlier, there you go, there's your triangle, right? God, the Father, sent the Son, and we walk according to the spirit. These are not separated from each other, but actually all unified. Okay, so we notice right away here that salvation is not merely Christ-centric. Sometimes I think we can be sort of Christ-centric in our salvation, which is not necessarily wrong as long as you don't do it at the expense of the Father and Son, because the Bible, again, doesn't allow you to do it at the expense of the Father and Son. So we see here, yes, Jesus died for our sins, not the Father or the Spirit. And yet the result of Christ's work is the Spirit living within us, right? So that we can walk in the way of Christ, or as he says here, that we can walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh, in righteousness, not in sin. Okay, so Paul just can't talk about salvation without using Trinitarian language. Okay, so that kind of helps us answer this next question, which I want to spend a little bit more time on, which is how does a triune God empower us to live the Christian life, right? So what? Okay, we know we're saved, we know we're justified, we know Jesus' blood covers our sins, so what? What do we do with it? Well, Paul answers that question here uh, as well. Okay, so we need to acknowledge, right, that we are not in need of salvation at one time in our lives, but we are in an ongoing need for the sanctifying effects of the gospel, right, that we become more and more like Christ, Lord willing, as we grow, right? Salvation is ultimately a journeying toward becoming more like Christ. So what we use, the fancy word sanctification. Okay, so we don't just believe these certain things, but we walk according to these certain things, as Paul says. Okay, so look at verse, uh, verse, starting verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh, right, without the spirit, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, believer, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if in Christ, uh, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, and the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Okay, so again, according to Paul here, salvation is not merely a one-time work of God. Okay, although we would certainly say something like uh, justification uh, at the beginning of faith, right? As soon as you confess that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. I'm not saying that. But that salvation, that moment starts a trajectory in which you walk in the spirit, right? And you grow in your faith. Okay, so the ongoing need for the triune God's work in the Christian life is demonstrated by the fact that every phrase that Paul uses here in verses 5 to 11 includes the need for the Holy Spirit to be at work in you. Okay, let me just give you, I'll give you a quick bullet point here. He says, we live according to the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the mindset of life and peace. You cannot please God in the flesh, but only in the Spirit. You do not belong to God apart from the Spirit. And your ultimate hope of resurrection lies in the Spirit because that same Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So we don't have just a merely Christ-centered salvation, but we also don't have a merely, uh, you could say, Spirit-centered salvation sanctification, okay, because the Spirit, even as he's being mentioned here, is always being tied to what the Father and Son have done, okay, even his titles, look, he's called the Spirit of God, or you could say the Spirit of the Father, 
in this uh, scenario. And he's called the spirit of Christ. This does not mean that the son is unequal to the father and son, or he's just some sort of subordinate character that just kind of does whatever they boss him around to do. It actually is a sign of equality, right? Because he is the, the spirit of the father and the spirit of Christ, he actually is equal to them and can do the things that he can do, the things that only God can do. If you read through the Bible, what is it that God can do? Save, sanctify, give us eternal hope. Well, that is applied to the spirit here in the context of what the father and son have done. Okay, so it might be tempting to see the spirit as some sort of lesser figure in light of the father and son. Okay, but notice that the Bible never says that you or I or angels or giraffes or any other creature in creation can do the things the spirit is said to do. Right, so that makes him equal to the father and son, not somehow less. There's not some intermediary uh, category there between God and us that the spirit kind of floats in this middle ground. He does the stuff that God does. And he does these things with the father and son because the father and son and spirit are inseparable from one another in our lives. Okay, so Jesus, I love in John 16, Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, listen, I'm gonna die on the cross, I'm gonna raise again and I'm gonna leave and good luck. Maybe you can just uh, follow my teachings, okay? Just try really hard, you know, grit it out, be like me and you'll be fine. But in John 16, that's actually not what he tells them. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away always blows my mind. How is it good for Jesus to go away? I'm sure the disciples thought the same thing. He says, well, why is it good for me to go away? Because if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Right, he is able to take what is Jesus's and give it to you, right? Because he's God, he can apply the work of God to you. He says, this is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. So Jesus doesn't leave his disciples alone when he ascends. In fact, he does the opposite. He says, it's better for me to go away because now the spirit can pour out on all of creation, right? As, as we see in Acts two, which is prophesied in Joel, in Joel two, that one day God will pour out his spirit on all of creation. Jesus is saying, we're looking that way, okay? So the father, son, uh, father and Son send the Spirit, and the Spirit points back to them. And so we see here that we have everything we need in the triune God to live the Christian life. We are not alone for a moment. So when Jesus' disciples start worrying, why, why are you leaving? Where are you going? What are we supposed to do? He says, don't worry, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit will live in you, and I will live in you. Okay, you think about this inseparable operation, just think about this idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit are always working together. You know, another way we could talk about it, uh, the resurrection is a great example of this in Scripture. You see in places like 1 Peter where it says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, you see here in Romans 8 that the Spirit raises Jesus from the dead. And then you see John, uh, Jesus say in like John 2 and John 10, I have the authority to lay my life down and raise it up. So if somebody were to ask you, who raised Jesus from the dead, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, the answer is yes. Right? Now, the Father didn't die on the cross. There's your distinction. But the work that they do together, you see in the Father, Son, and Spirit. So, again, we're, we've talked a lot about this idea that you have to see the Bible as a unity. And you have to learn to speak the way the Bible speaks. And as you read, you'll find out that we just can't talk about salvation, sanctification, any of the work of God without eventually coming to the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit all are involved in it. Okay, now look at verse 12 here. Okay, Paul has a very Trinitarian shape to his exhortation to how to live. 
In verse 12, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Okay, my simple question is, what more could we ask for than this? What more could we ask for than that the Father in love and goodness would send the Son and Spirit to do all the work that we couldn't do? Why does Jesus put on flesh and dwell among us? Because there needs to be a man, biblically speaking, there needs to be a man who undoes the curse of Adam, who is obedient perfectly, who is a perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, all those things that they're looking for. Jesus is all of those things. How is he able to be those things? Yes, he's truly human, but also because he's God, right? And then we get the spirit who brings us into this adoption, who allows us to get this uh, heavenly inheritance, you might say, right, from the father to the son as adopted sons and daughters. As sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, our inheritance is sin and death, right? But as sons and daughters of the father, our inheritance is the kingdom of God. We become co-heirs with Christ. Okay, I'm going to skip over verses 18 to 25, uh, but he says there, Paul says there that indeed all of creation longs for new creation, and we long uh, with creation for new creation because we know that there is something better coming. And he says that how do we hope? We hope because we've been given hope through the work and promises of the Spirit that the Father and Son have sent to us. So our hope in the Father and Son is given to us by the Spirit. So as children of the Father... And co-heirs with Christ, who has defeated sin and death on our behalf, we are empowered by the Spirit to live a hope-filled obedience, obedience, longing for the day when our triune God comes to make all things new. So we see here that the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, acting inseparably, not only save us, but empower us to live the Christian life. Our hope of being obedient, our hope of following Jesus, our hope of being the people God has called us to be, is because the triune God has done all the work to empower us to do that, to free us from sin and death, and to show us the hope that we have in the resurrection. Okay, so we walk in the gospel uh, freedom of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Okay, but as the old infomercials used to say, wait, there's more. <laughs> we got a whole, we're, still, we're not even halfway done with the, with the chapter yet. Okay, so the third one, and finally, how does the triune God keep us in the Christian life? So, so far we've seen that the Christian life is dependent on the work of the triune God. He has saved us and done all the work to save us. It's not like, you know, we've got a role in this, okay? He has done all the work for us, okay? And then we believe and confess. We're empowered to live the Christian life, to walk freely in the spirit because of the work of the triune God, right? Because he has given us the power to do it. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also says that the triune God keeps us saved, Okay, and I'll explain what I mean by that here in a second. Okay, so he brings you into salvation. He empowers you to live in light of that salvation. He helps you by the spirit to walk in righteousness and not sin, not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ who has been sent by the Father to us. Then in verses 26 to 30, he says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness because we do not know 
what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called to his purpose, according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, there are a lot of theological debates that come out of this part of Romans 8 about predestination, uh, whether somebody can lose their salvation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I am entirely uninterested in talking about that right now. Uh, because I think what Paul's main point here is not the secondary debates, which are important and which we should care about, but ultimately that the triune God is our hope for salvation from beginning to end, and that he is the primary subject of our worship and of our life. Okay, Paul says here, when we struggle to pray, what happens? Paul says that the Spirit prays on our behalf. You ever laid in bed and stared at the ceiling and said, is anybody listening is this, is, are these words hitting the wall? Do I, am I even saying stuff right? Paul says, don't worry about it. Even if you don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays and intercedes on your behalf. You're not even left alone in that. In your obedience, you're not left alone, right? When we suffer and doubt and reach the depths of despair, what happens? Paul says that the Father sent the Son to save us and keep us, right? And that he intercedes for us, it says later in chapter 8. Okay, so all the work that has been done has been done by the triune God, by the Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you remember Psalm 3.8, it says that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we know, as Paul says here, that all things work together for our good because it is the triune God, not us, who is in control because salvation belongs to him. Salvation belongs to the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So as you live the Christian life day to day, Remember that your triune God is always near, that he has never left you, and that he has promised to always be at work in your life. One of the past, first passages I ever uh, memorized as a Christian was 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with that temptation also provide a way out. Right? So even in your temptation, God says, I will provide a way out. Well, what is that way out? the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the freedom to walk in the gospel in light of the Spirit. So, uh, brothers and sisters, um, we always have a way out of sin and temptation because of what our triune God has done for us. He promises to. He says, you are a child of the Father set free by the life, death, and resurrection of the Son so that you might walk in the Spirit. In the triune God, you have everything you need to pray, to sing, to hope, to fight temptation, to be free from shame and condemnation, and to look forward to the day that Christ comes to make all things new. Okay, so I just want to close by reading uh, verses 31 to 39 as a uh, sort of, maybe we say a sort of benediction for all of us. Okay, starting in verse 31, I'm just going to read this over us as a, as a prayer or a benediction. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him, uh, how will he also not with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
but even more, he has been raised. And he sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.